Welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchon, the Director of Music Ministries. During these unprecedented days of physical distancing and leading online worship, The worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that share the challenges of producing online worship and finding ways to help those worshiping with us to stay engaged and feel connected even from a distance. Today's episode is going to be a conversation centered on the CCLI Plus Beyond Vetting Project. With me to talk about this is Dr. Nelson Cowan, Project Manager of the CCLI Plus Beyond Vetting Project, and Gerald Liu, one of the committee members serving on this project. Reverend Nelson Cowan, PhD, is the pastor of First United Methodist Church in High Springs, Florida. Dr. Cowan earned his PhD in liturgical studies from Boston University, and he teaches worship, church history, and preaching for the United Methodist Course of Study program. Having served as a contemporary worship leader for many years, he was a member of the original CCLI Top 100 Vetting Team from 2015 to 2018, the United Methodist Church's Hymnal Revision Committee, and now serves as the project manager for this project. Gerald Liu is an assistant professor of worship and preaching at Princeton Theological School. An ordained United Methodist elder of the Mississippi Annual Conference, he also serves as a minister in residence at the Church of the Village, a United Methodist congregation in Manhattan. He is the son of culturally Buddhist immigrants from Taiwan, and he is the author of Music and Generosity of God. Welcome to you both. So Nelson, why don't you give us an overview of this project? Well, thanks for having us on here today, Diana. Um, I want to talk about how the project started, I guess, in 2015, and and to highlight some of the differences between uh, how we started and where we ended up now. Mm -hmm. So back in 2015, the United Methodist Church and Discipleship Ministries uh, saw a need to vet theologically and for language and for uh, kind of practicality to vet contemporary worship songs. We know that as United Methodist um, folks across the country are already incorporating contemporary worship music into the life of their churches. And we as a denomination wanted to come alongside worship leaders and planners to help them think theologically about the songs that they're choosing and uh, and give some practical guidance as well. And so for this original project, we were it was very um, detail focused and we were looking at um, kind of a very systematic uh, study of these songs, looking at theology, language, um, the function of that particular song. Uh, we looked at singability and instrumentation. Where would it go in the order of service? And we typed in keywords for all of these things to go with what we have in our United Methodist hymnal. And um, there was even like this weighted scoring process and 10 to 12 of us are all doing this together. And we came out with a list of, of recommended songs and we, that we called the green list and songs that we uh, put in the yellow list called recommend with caution. Um, <laughs> and yes, it was a yeah, very, I, 
I remember seeing the the vetting tool, the the metrics, and it was very intricate. And um, it, it, that itself was just a marvel. <laughs> so but then you come out with this wonderful list of the green list and the the caution list. It was it was really amazing. Yeah, it, it was it was amazing uh, work to to put out there for those of us who were on the original vetting team. It was a lot of work. I mean. And of course, it deserves our work. And but we were spending many of us were spending thirty to forty five minutes per song. And when you're evaluating a hundred songs with a, a team of volunteers, that can get uh, pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. A feeling that many of us are um, can experience right now with this pandemic and worship planning. Um, right. So we wanted to make some key changes for um, going uh, forward with this from in 2020 and beyond. And one thing that we really noticed. Um, in our last, in the last iterations of the project is when we're evaluating these songs, we noticed that, you know, all of these songwriters are overwhelmingly white. They're overwhelmingly male. They're all coming from uh, these, uh, not mainstream, uh, yeah, mainstream evangelical and Pentecostal traditions, which of course has a lot of harmony with our United Methodist tradition, but they're also um, some key aspects of what makes us United Methodist. And so we wanted we saw some that all these songs and all these artists didn't necessarily represent everyone who's in our pews and our seats in the United Methodist Church. And we wanted to bring in um, some alternate voices to really to break open this idea of the CCLI top 100 and to uh, to broaden it to include more diverse voices, more diverse perspectives, and as well as diverse genres. And, you know, contemporary worship is not a singular genre. It's this composite. Uh, peace. You've got gospel. Um, you've got some global song. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just a variety of things going on. And so we really wanted to address that in this most recent project, while also streamlining the way that we evaluate it. Well, and um, can you talk a little bit about the guidelines? Because I know you, uh, you, this first, the first go round uh, came up with these wonderful guidelines, and that were then used by the hymnal revision committee. Cause I was on that committee and um, chaired the convened the tunes and text. And we use those guidelines because they were so, um, so focused and concise that they were just really good to use. Could you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. And so for this go around of the project, we really nailed it down um, to three, narrowed it down to three different focus areas. So we've got, uh, theology, we've got our United Methodist understandings of language, and then we have performance practice. And so for theology, we're looking at these five categories, five theological categories that have shown up all over Charles Wesley's hymns. And so if you want to look at United Methodist doctrine, oftentimes teachers of history and doctrine will go straight to Wesley's hymns. And so we called, we called some themes from these. And so there are five of them that we're using. Uh, we've got love, Wesley notions of love, love being at the core of God's identity and how God interacts with humanity. Uh, we have time. Uh, time is dynamic and our Methodist understanding um, of time. You know, what Christ did, Christ's work on the cross was not just an event isolated in past history, but it has, um, it's infiltrated all aspects of time, past, present, and future. Uh, we're taking a look at the various Wesleyan means of grace um, and also how that propels us into a life of uh, justice seeking as well. Um, we have incarnation and atonement. And one thing that's really neat about our understanding and, and 
in terms of how it shows up in songs is, yes, we talk about the incarnation. Yes, we talk about um, the atonement. But the response in our understanding is this response of ecstatic praise. And so that's what we're really looking for in those mm-hmm. songs. And also, as we know, you know, part of our uh, salvation process is the Holy Spirit and this idea of sanctification and sanctifying uh, grace that we uh, cooperate with. And so we're looking at all five of those theological categories. Mm-hmm. And then for language, we're, we want inclusive language um, regarding humanity, how we talk about one another. So, um, you know, we'll shy away from songs that say mankind and we'll instead want things that say humankind that's more inclusive of all of all of us. Um, yes. And then we're looking at very expansive language for God. As we know in our hymnal and in our various hymnal supplements, we're always trying to uh, endorse songs that um, don't just refer to God as father, although father is a fine image. We want to expand that God as guardian, God as rock, God as mother, and the list goes on and on of these these images. And so uh, we were, were looking at these CCLI songs and beyond uh, with an eye towards that. And then, that's true. Mm-hmm. yeah, do you want to go into performance practice or are we going to talk about sure. that a little bit later? Well, yeah, we can talk about that a little bit later. Let me ask Gerald. Um, so um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with the vetting and how the vetting takes place so that people can understand what the process is that we're using? Yeah, thank you, Diana. And thanks again for having me on the call. And thanks to Nelson for inviting me to be a part of the project. You know, I'm I'm new to the group, and I think I was a relatively um, later addition, actually. Um, so, so I'm still learning the ins and outs of the process. But the way that I've understood it, and it's been great so far, is we usually convene a meeting about once every month. We receive a list of songs. I'd say it ranges from just north of 20 up to 30, 35, uh, and we're asked to vet the songs. There's this elaborate spreadsheet that Nelson had just mentioned, and he's provided us uh, links, which are very helpful, both to live, often live performances of the music, as well as lyrical content regarding what's going on. And so each one of us um, downloads this Excel sheet and listens to the music and fills in these fields regarding what the what is being theologically communicated with the songs and then we uh meet now on screen to discuss what we found and try to figure out well what songs are going to be most suitable uh for the united methodist church which ones do we have questions about uh what also isn't present so we're, we're also thinking about horizons of hope in terms of what kind of music we would like to see, uh, both within the genres of what's considered modern worship music, but maybe beyond, as the title of the project suggests, what we currently think of when we think of modern worship music. So it's both, on the one hand, descriptive analysis and kind of a close examination with respect to Wesleyan values. And I, I don't think it's too far of a moonshot to say it's also dreaming on the other hand of what could be and laying some analytical framework uh, to make those dreams concrete, you know, to uh, fulfill the aspirations of having music that doesn't sound old fashioned, that's more diverse, uh, not only in terms of the 
what the authors embody or the songwriters embody, but also diversity in terms of what's being uh, presented theologically. Right. So we're, we're in a tradition. I mean, the United Methodist Church started in 68, but it goes all the way back to the colonies and in a way formed with the United States itself. Uh, and I think we're always looking for a kind of longer arc also in our worship music and how we're defining ourselves as Methodists now and what it means to be singing these songs. And, and what what do we make of the fact that these songs have purchase around the world? You know, uh, I'll kind of wrap it up here. but. I was just looking up some statistics, and I don't know how accurate they are, but I would think they're pretty close. Bethel Music, uh, just this month, I think, is already up to a, a million and a half dollars from their YouTube channel only. Uh, Hillsong, which is perhaps one of the top publishers of this music, makes about $100 million annually. So to give you a sense of the scale here, our budget in the United Methodist Church is often around 600, 700 million. So Hillsong is making a sixth of our budget annually. Um, and that, that's not to say, wow, look at what they're doing. Uh, I mean, this should have us scratching our heads when we see what the lyrical content of this music is and that people around the world in countries where English is not even a second or third language. They're learning these songs, you know? That's what amazing. Is, yeah, that uh, the gospel is tied to this kind of music enterprise. Um, wow. You know, this is a business as much as it is a witness for many of the songs on this list. And I think we've got to be thinking about this critically as Methodists. Hmm. Those are good points. Wow. Nelson, I saw you wanting to jump in there. What, what, what do you have to say about this? Oh, no, I was just like you. I was saying, wow. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate the statistical glance at this, Gerald. Um, as one who did my, my dissertation on Hillsong Church, it was, it was nice to hear that put in perspective. Uh, I knew, I knew that the, the number that they had earned, so I think your figure is correct. Um, I did not draw the comparison between the church, the general church budget. So that's a, that's a, that's a enlightening statistic. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, wow. uh, sorry to jump in here, but when we think about our own identity as United Methodists and where our theology comes from, I mean, it's sort of common parlance to think we sing our theology. You know, Wesley was not a systematic theologian. We basically have learned it from what we have sung. That same thing is happening in churches around the world, but they have nothing to do with Methodism. And what they're singing uh, often veers far from Wesleyan ideals of what is sound theological content. So, so the gospel is getting torqued a certain mm. way in this music, and it has mass appeal. Mm. Well, and I think... Um uh, uh, that a lot of this music, say, say from Hillsong, gets people in the door, and that's wonderful. But then to provide the meat for good, theologically sound um, discourse on what the nature of God, grace, those things that Nelson was talking about, which are a part of the guidelines, they aren't there a lot of times. And so what I like about this project is when we take a song, say, from a hill song or something that that is very um, one note, if you will, that only talks about how much I love to praise God. 
which is a good thing to do, of course, but it doesn't really go any further than that. Then we we um, make notes to say, you need to put this one, or we recommend that you put this song, which talks about only about praising God, along with something else that talks about the nature of God or the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's hard to find Trinitarian language in a lot of this modern contemporary um, genre. And so, again, I think that this project helps pair um, some of those things together to give a fuller understanding uh, as well, not only uh, in terms of theology, but also in terms of musical genres. And um, so I wanted to go there a, a little bit. Um, as you were talking, Gerald, I was thinking about um, one of the things that we have on the vetting sheet is how can this piece be performed? Some ideas about the performance of that piece, because not everyone has a full pull out, you know, band uh, with backup singers and um, or a backup choir. Um, so could y'all y'all talk a little bit about those performance notes that will be included? Nelson, do you want to go first? You take it first. Okay. I, you know, I think you raise a good point, Diana, in terms of performance practice. Uh, on the one hand, these songs are written, many of them, so that they could be performed in a with a simpler instrumentation, guitar and vocal, piano and vocal. On the other hand, the ways in which these songs are marketed and made popular is they're in these kind of arena settings uh, with full-on bands happening. And so... Yeah, when we think about the United Methodist Church in particular, a denomination that has basically shrunk in half in the United States since 1968 until now, that is on the verge of schism right now. And then we're looking at these videos of people packing these arenas and we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do with this music that's so popular? It presents a challenge. Not only that is, should we even be aspiring to this kind of spectacle? Again, I think this is a part of what we're thinking about in the group, and I'll let Nelson sort of chime in in a second because he is much more knowledgeable in this regard than I am. But many of the keys that are used, a lot of the tempo that's happening in these this music is homogenous. You know, it, it sort of sounds like a kind of electrified soft rock uh, <laughs> updated for the, the 21st century. And, and so... Could there be other styles, other sounds? Is there more room for dissonance? You know, something like this, Nelson. Yeah, I think one thing we're we're really trying to to do with this when we when we're evaluating these songs for performance practice, this is really where the teaching component of the project comes in. You know, we want these songs to be contextually representative. We don't want you to to do as Hillsong does. I mean, if you have the technology, if you have the budget. And that's your, that is the, the ethos of your congregation's uh, worshiping life, then yes, go for it. Bring out your multi-tracking technology, bring out all of your, all of your, your band members and, and do it. Um, if that fits your context, um, we know that the majority of United Methodist congregations are small churches, um, and are not exactly resource rich. And, um, and so we're trying to make an effort to say, if you are going to do this song in a pared down fashion, you know, here's, here are some notes about that. Okay. You might not want to do that octave jump 
you know, if you're a male, if you're a tenor leading this, you might not want to do that octave jump because the, your congregation might get lost and you might, you might lose the folks who are, who are singing with you. Um, or if a song has complicated rhythm, we can, we can give recommendations about, you know, you can simplify this a little bit. Um, but we also want songs that can be done, um, in a variety of genres. So, you know, sometimes we find that these very simple songs, um, can be, if I can use the word, yeah, enculturated, um, into a different, you know, for example, there's a, there's a song by, I think we evaluated it in one of the first few rounds. It's Break Every Chain, written by Will Reagan. Um, lyrics are, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. Uh, Will Reagan is a white artist. However, the song was so simple and it almost had some some contemporary gospel undertones to it that a famous gospel artist, Tasha Cobbs Leonard, uh, took this song and really popularized it um, for the African-American community and for the contemporary gospel community. And it exploded in ways that it had not before. And then, and then it almost kind of rebounded back to white congregations. And so it's, um, you know, we want to find these things that can be done in a variety of settings and contexts, and not just from like, you know, uh, plain music done by white congregations to then be transposed into congregations of color, but um, an, a, cross, a sense of cross-pollination. We, you know, white churches should be singing uh, songs from all cultures as well, you know. Right. Yeah, that's what I, I've really enjoyed in this project, these last couple of go-rounds that we've had, is that um, we are now vetting things that are not on the CCLI top 100 list. We've gone beyond, and that's part of that uh, title that we now have. And these songs that we're vetting, the committee has um, suggested these songs. And we came up with maybe five or six, each of us. And Nelson, how many of us are on the committee? I'm not even sure I've counted. There are 10 of us <laughs> in total. And there okay. were, and there were t- uh, about 70 songs that we put forward. There you uh, go. Yeah. In addition and, and to the, 33 CCLI songs that we had that had shown up since 2017. And we have so we went through composed. those first. What, Gerald? Well, I was just going to say, and we have originally composed songs from committee members. We do. That's true. Yeah. So, so I love the fact that the beyond part is going to um, artists that are not represented represented by big labels. Um, have not been on the top 100, but many of those, we, we acknowledge that these are going to be on the top 100 very soon. Um, and they come from other contexts. And that has been so enriching to me. And I love it. And I think that that is going to um, help the, the wider church um, step into uh, the richness that's out there, because we have to admit that the CCLI Top 100 is really just one segment of our population listens to that. Um, I think about the Kirk Franklin songs that don't hardly make that list, you know. Um, And uh, so anyway, that's to me, that's one of the really exciting things. So what? Go ahead. Can I say a word about our kind of our focus area? So, you know, we've got there was a little bit of an order to this. We wanted to to get through the CCLI songs that had rolled on since 2017. So we wanted to do that part of the work because this still is in continuity with that project. But as you mentioned, it's that and beyond portion that we're really uh, focusing our energy on. And we had some some particular 
uh, categories we were really trying to uh, find. And those are um, songs from songs and artists from Black, Latinx, and Asian folks. Uh, we're looking at independent artists and small record labels. We're looking into the global song genre. Uh, we're focusing on women songwriters. And then we're also focusing writ large on songs outside the theological scope of evangelicalism. Mm. And so those are, those are some of our, folk, our guiding folk, uh, focus areas for this, for this work. And it makes for some great conversation yeah. <laughs> as we're vetting those. And I think a way to see this beyond part is it's also um, a recommendation or a nudge to the church. Mm. We're not simply saying, okay, here's an alternative list that we came up with, use this one instead. It functions as a bridge piece, right? So if we see things lacking in what's already popular, and then we've made suggestions as to what could be sung as an alternative, I think what we're also implicitly recommending or nudging the church to do is to reclaim the Wesleyan idea of making music. You know, so our work as a committee continues in the work of local congregations making music. Um, they, may, they may not use Excel sheets and they may not receive uh, emails from Nelson saying, hey, this needs to be done by this time. And by the way, here's the Zoom invite. But I think part of what we're encouraging folks who do use this list is, is also to uh, channel their own theological dissatisfaction and then to turn it into musical gifts uh, that can promote growth in United Methodism uh, with respect to whatever beyond means for their particular communities and their particular people. Mm, good word. Wow. Wow. Um, so Nelson, when do you think uh, this uh, next list is going to be ready for people to access? We are, we have one more round of vetting as a team. Um, and once we complete that, Hopefully we will be able to release our list and teaching document to go along with it by December 1st. Um, and if we're extra on top of our game, we'll include some Advent and Christmas resources, though I cannot promise that. Um, but ideally this will, I mean, not ideally, this will at least be a project for 2021 worship planning. Um, and if we're, as I said, if we're extra on our game, hopefully you'll have some Advent and, Christmas, and stuff for the Christmas season as well. That's wonderful. And so um, do you have any thoughts on where, where we go from here? What's next after we after that list is published and it's out there? What what are your thoughts? What is your dream for what's next? Well, one thing that I think we've recognized is that we need more United Methodist songwriters and that um, large umbrella of the contemporary worship genre. Um, yes. Uh, we, we you know we want folks that can that can speak to the to our theological heritage and our theological um, our identity, um, and so that that's a huge that's a huge piece. Ideally, I'd also love to um, for our denomination in general to be more in touch uh, with those and discipleship ministries as a great bridging job of this already, um, but to to be even more intentional about being in contact with uh, local contemporary worship practitioners. And to really to get a better temperature of what's going on um, on the ground and how we can, as a denomination, come alongside and support these these practitioners. And I think part of that means we'll learn a lot from them, too. You know, mm -hmm. 
you know, just in our team, as I said, just in our team of 10 folks, like we already had, we had to limit ourselves to recommending 70 songs that you will not find on the CCLI top 100. And that's just 10 people, you know, uh, recommending and limiting themselves to a total of 70 songs. Like think how much more uh, richness we have uh, and the wisdom of our collective imaginations as, as contemporary worship leaders. And I would just yes, say, I agree. You know, being iconoclastic about what we're doing, we're saying, well, here are the existing paradigms or what people think worship music is, and, and here's what's currently popular. But actually, maybe we ought to be listening to these songs instead or singing this instead. Maybe we ought to be uh, thinking about reinvention. If historically our theology as Methodists have come, has come from song, how might we define ourselves going forward, especially in a time in which church, churches are closed, churches are doing church online in ways they never imagined? You know, nobody, we're, we're all sort of trying to peer into the crystal ball and figure out what the future is. And I, I would hope once this project wraps up that people, you know, maybe this is a big ask, but are inspired to be courageous musically as Methodists. You know, if they don't hear it, it, so it's, in other words, it's not just a matter of fitting the mold of what a worship leader already is or saying, okay, here's what CCLI top 100 music sounds like, or they propose, propose this alternative. Let me do that. But if they don't fit the mold, then to remake it, right? To become whatever the music should be in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of that is, um, you know, recognizing like how to, how to plan, how to choose these things. And that's really where that teaching component comes in. And as Gerald was mentioning, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be generous in this and, you know, we're saying, yes, you know, sing this, but also, you know, sing this over here. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if a song, you know, just an example, you know, this last round of vetting, we were evaluating a bunch of songs that were, were extremely lacking in images for God. Um, every, it seemed like almost every single song was just referring to God as you. And some of our questions were like, is this song addressed to God? Uh, the parent is this is addressed to Jesus, is this addressed to the spirit, um, you know, and there were no, no, no divine names for us, uh, to, to, mm -hmm. to grasp onto. And so, you know, we're not saying don't sing this. We're saying, if you are going to sing this, be sure, be, be sure to juxtapose and support this song with either, uh, another song or another prayer or another component of our liturgy that is more expansive and offering images for God. Um, and so I, I love the, the generous nature of this because we're not just, you know, for lack of better terms, poo-pooing poo on contemporary worship songs, although some folks have uh, understood our past work as a bit of that. Um, but well, that's, I mean, it, yeah, it's a it's critical work. So there's always going to be folks that don't like, you know, some some of the things that get left out or so sure. forth. Yeah, and I think ultimately what we're saying is make the music your own. Yes. And if that's not possible. Make your own music. To the mm, uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I love about the guidelines. It, the guidelines are so specific and so concise that if you're going to make your own music, you have somewhere to start. And uh, 
to be to be within the Wesleyan framework if if that's what you desire to do um, or to be. So yeah, I think those are wonderful. Well, um, we need to start wrapping this up. And I did want to mention before I forget that there will be two articles up on the Discipleship Ministries website um, that support everything we've just been saying. Um, one is called the CCLI Top 100 Plus Beyond Project, and it's a kind of a press release that talks about this project and, and also talks about the vetting team uh, who's, who are on the project. Um, and then the other one is the guidelines. And so the, those documents will be there for you to use, to look at. And then, as Nelson said, her, hopefully early December, uh, you'll able, be able to download the list and the recommendations um, from the committee. Any last words you guys want to say? Thank you for having me. Sure. That's, Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for yeah. hosting us. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been helpful to you. Remember that you can find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. So until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.